Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And today we're going to be discussing some uh, conservation or restoration projects. Uh, and we're going to be focusing in particular on some monuments and some works of art that have been conserved uh, in, in some cases in the recent past, uh, in some cases uh, more distantly in the past, um, but in each of these cases, there's been um, a, a certain amount of controversy that has surrounded the manner in which uh, these works were restored or renewed or conserved in some way. Just to clarify briefly, uh, when we're talking about conservation or restoration, we're talking about um, efforts that are made uh, to keep these objects or monuments from uh, deteriorating further if they're in some state of decay or ruin, um, or to restore them into uh, a previous state. Now, we'll, as we talk about some of our examples, we'll talk about the complicated questions as to what makes something an original state, who decides what that original state is, uh, and so forth. But uh, uh, just to clarify right off the bat, um, we'll be talking about both conservation, which as I said is is um, trying to keep something uh, in a in a uh, in a state in which it it, it can be preserved, um, and uh, restoration, which is um, trying to restore something into a previous state. We thought that January might be a good time to consider these controversial. Um, conservation acts because of course in January everyone's just made their New Year's resolution and we're all thinking about ways to improve ourselves to refresh our routine and um, I know this might sound like a bit of a reach but actually I think that there's an interesting parallel because in order to make our New Year's resolutions we need to think about what matters to us these kinds of fundamental questions also come up when people are conserving works of art right so what should this work look like uh, how do we know what it should look like? Who gets to judge what it should look like? And the more broad point that we want to make um, is that as these questions are being considered and negotiated, um, the works of art in question, in fact, become dynamic, living entities. And so Sarah and I have talked about this before, about how works of art, in fact, are not really just these um, static, concrete things, but in fact, evolve over time um, both physically and conceptually in terms of how we how we think about them, how we understand them, how we use them. And conservation is a very concrete example of how works of art, in fact, are always evolving and changing. As a side note, we were also um, encouraged to record this episode. We had been thinking about this issue of conservation for a little while, and then um, one of our listeners out there, Kelly, wrote in and suggested this as a potential topic. So thank you to Kelly and also to everybody else if you have any ideas for episodes that you would like to hear us record in the future, please definitely do go to our website, www.arthistory.today, or to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash arthistoday, and let us know if you have any ideas. Serendipitously, as we were doing the research for this episode, I saw that 
The New Yorker published an article by Ben Lerner called The Custodians, which is precisely about this issue. And I highly recommend if you're interested in, in today's topic or um, if today's uh, podcast piques your interest, definitely go look it up. Um, it's in the current issue of The New Yorker. I think it's January 16th, 2016. Um, it's called The Custodians, and it's about the Whitney Museum's Replication Committee, which is a team of 14 conservators, curators, um, archivists, a lawyer, and a registrar. And as Ben Lerner explains, this committee convenes to, quote, determine when a work of art or a part of a work of art cannot be fixed or restored in the traditional ways, when and how it must instead be replicated. These discussions result in recommendations that affect the way artworks are maintained, classified, and described in exhibitions. While Lerner's article is nominally about this replication committee and its sort of day-to-day -day operations and also uh, a, it's kind of a profile of its leader, um, this uh, very well-known conservator. Uh, fundamentally, the article really is about why conservation is such a problem um, conceptually, uh, why it's such a difficult thing uh, to do and, and requires quite so much. I mean, why basically why it requires 14 people, this whole committee, in order just to conserve a work of art. Um, and Lerner points out that it's because every act of conservation is, in fact, he says, a fundamentally uh, an interpretive act. In other words, in order to be able to conserve a work of art, the very first thing you need to do is to establish what the work of art is actually about and, and to understand what elements um, physically and materially of the, that work are important to that meaning and what elements are, are not important. Um, so more profoundly than just sort of what's original to the work and, and what's not original, there's also this question of what's in, integral to the work and what is not. In order to help elucidate the, the thorny problem of figuring out um, what a work is really all about or what is, what is integral to a work and what is not integral to the work, um, Lerner, who, by the way, is a MacArthur Genius Grant winning poet, uh, beautiful writing here in this essay, uh, brings in the famous ship of Theseus. Um, and according to Plutarch, this ship, um, quote, and this is Plutarch's writing, was preserved by the Athenians down even to the time of Demetrius Philarius, for they took away the old planks as they decayed, putting in new and stronger timber in their place, insomuch that the ship became a standing example among the philosophers for the logical question of things that grow, one side holding that the ship remained the same and the other contending that it was not the same. So in other words, the, the ship of Theseus um, is, is a sort of icon of this ancient philosophical problem that considers at what point does something stop being itself when it is um, being substituted part by part, right? And, and this also applies even to, you know, to, to us, to humans, right? Because each of our cells apparently like regenerates every 10 years or whatever. And um, so, you know, how do you even think about yourself as this constant stable entity when, you know, all of your cells basically at some point have completely turned over? The works that we're going to be talking about today, of course, have not been um, this extensively conserved or renovated. We're not talking about a situation in which every single part has been um, has been updated or upgraded. But the acts of conservation and a restoration sort of put you on a slippery slope where you do have to begin to ask yourself, you know, how far can we go before we actually have just created something entirely new? And again, um, you know, this becomes important because it's really about trying to figure out what is the work of art and and therefore what are its sort of boundaries, its limits, um, what is it at its core. 
the tension that Sarah is describing between conservation and restoration actually has run through the entire history of uh, modern uh, conservation. Back in 1848, the very influential British critic John Ruskin uh, wrote an essay called The Lamp of Memory, and he argued that restoration, in fact, uh, quote, means the most total destruction which a building can suffer, a destruction out of which no remnants can be gathered, a destruction accompanied with false description of the thing destroyed. So he was completely against restoration, and he thought that um, the the decline of especially architectural monuments was, in fact, part of their history. It was, it was integral to the building um, itself. At the other end of the spectrum, we have... Viollet-le-Duc, a French architect and theorist who basically in the same exact decade was working on the restoration of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And Sarah is going to be talking more about his work on that project and why it was so controversial. But he advocated that, in fact, we should restore a building, um, quote, in in order to reestablish it in a finished state, which may, in fact, never have actually existed at any given time. So... um, Villiers-le-Duc isn't as interested in the, um, the facts of history. He's more interested in the intentions, um, in you know, basically saying, well, maybe they, they never were able to achieve this, but they really wanted it to look like this, so we should just go ahead and finish it for them. Somewhere in the middle is where the more contemporary attitudes towards conservation and restoration lie, and that's basically that um, we should try to Um, keep things from further deteriorating, as Sarah said, that's conservation. Um, And if we are going to restore things, then we should do it in a way that is, one, reversible, and two, honest. So in other words, to create an intervention into the work that, um, that can be undone if the future has different information or a different perspective about what the thing, you know, should look like. Um, and that also um, acknowledges that it's honest, um, that admits the fact that it is there. At the Met, uh, we have a very sort of extreme version of this, which is where um, if you go to the Greek and Roman galleries, you'll see that there are um, works of marble sculpture that have lost part of their limbs. And in order to give you a sense of the overall uh, proportion and dimension of the work, they have added those limbs back, but in order to admit the falsification, these limbs are not made of marble, they're just steel rods. So um, it's sort of a very jarring in a way, very disconcerting to see like these marble figures with like, uh, you know, a steel calf, <laughs> basically, or whatever. Um, but that that's a way of sort of admitting, look, you know, we don't have this part of the sculpture. Um, uh, there would have been something here, but obviously this is not it because this is obviously a very modern material. There's also an interesting set of, of sort of political questions at stake when we're talking about restoration or conservation, just in the act of uh, choosing what objects are worthy of conservation. There's an interesting example from from my own background. Um, uh, we are lucky uh, with the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York, where Tina works and where I was a fellow for a year. Um, the Met has a huge um, or a number of conservation departments, and this is rather unusual for for museums. Um, you know, not every museum has a conservator, let alone many conservators. And when I was working there. Uh, a painting by the artist I was writing my dissertation on uh, was chosen for conservation. Now, this was not a painting that is important, um, not necessarily 
something that art historians would look at as as a monument of of the particular particular period or context in which it was made but it was chosen because there was a major retrospective of that artist's work that was going to be um, uh, mounted at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. I, I, I really love, Sarah, that you, you bring up that story because it really underscores how every act of conservation is itself a statement of, of judgment, mm-hmm. um, is, is in fact a, an interpretation, right? It's, it's At the most basic level, it's saying this object is valuable and worth conserving and this object isn't. And then the next level is, okay, well, now that we're looking at this object, what about it is important to conserve, you know, versus what aspects aren't. So um, sort of like how we talk about with students of photography, it's like there is no such thing as a neutral photo because even deciding where to point your camera is itself a statement. agency. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The first example of a questionable conservation or restoration we're going to discuss is is one Tina already brought up, uh, which is the restoration of Notre Dame in Paris. And this was a restoration that took place... uh, about a century and a half ago, uh, and interestingly is is largely what is responsible for making that cathedral, the, the central Notre Dame in Paris, uh, the iconic monument uh, that we know today, and, and it's part of the reason that um, it, it gained that iconic status, which it, which it didn't necessarily have uh, prior to this restoration. So just a little bit about the cathedral's history. Uh, It was built largely in the 12th and 13th centuries uh, in what we call the Gothic style of architecture. Notre Dame uh, is at the very center of Paris. Uh, It's in the, uh, literally in the center in the first arrondissement, which is basically uh, a a district uh, in in Paris and the districts are numbered and they sort of spiral out from the center. So it's in number one in the center. Uh, And it's actually on the Ile de la Cité, which is an island in the middle of the Seine. And it was important for centuries after the construction was initially completed, um, but with the French Revolution of 1789, uh, major destruction occurred uh, to the building. So one of the major objectives of the revolution uh, was was not only to turn overturn monarchical power, another major objective was to overturn religious authority. So uh, all church property uh, was declared property of the French state. Uh, sacred spaces all over France were looted. Some were destroyed. Relics were burned. Um, gold that was in the, the treasuries of these sacred sites were melted down and given to the state. Um, so lots of destruction to uh, to church property. Uh, at Notre Dame specifically, the spire, which is this, this tall pointy tower, was disassembled. Um, there's a series of, of statues that collectively are known as the Gallery of Kings, and those statues were destroyed. These were statues that were on the West Portal, which is essentially the front of the building. Um, after the revolution, after that Uh, period ended, and especially when Napoleon came into power, uh, the cathedral was actually given back to the Catholic Church, and Napoleon was crowned Emperor of France uh, there in 1804. Um, But by the 1840s, so you have this period where religion sort of becomes important in in public and in, in state life again, but by the 1840s, so several decades later, Notre Dame was essentially a ruin. Um, it was used as a storage space. It, it hadn't been restored um, since the revolutionary events. 
1844, the king uh, of France at the time, Louis Philippe, declared that Notre Dame should be restored. Probably one of the first cultural monuments uh, to come to mind when you think of Notre Dame, in addition to the cathedral itself, is Victor Hugo's famous novel, Notre Dame de Paris, uh, which translates in English to The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or that, that, that's how it's generally known in English. Um, we can't really underscore enough how crucial this novel was to the cathedral actually being restored. Um, it, uh, the, the, the novel was hugely popular and within it, the building, the cathedral, essentially functions as a character. And some uh, historians argue that it's actually the main character. The building itself is the main character in the book. And the second chapter of the book is this, this long overview, this very evocative overview of Notre Dame's architecture. So the uh, restoration of Notre Dame was, uh, was part of this widespread effort um, to actually restore and maintain uh, France's past throughout the entire country, not just, not just in Paris. Um, and uh, much of this, this restoration work on Notre Dame, which um, occurred from 1845 until 1864, this was happening in the midst of this major reconstruction and rebuilding of Paris, basically from the ground up. It was a project that became known as uh, Haussmannization or Osmanization, named after uh, uh, Baron Haussmann, who was um, in many ways responsible for this for this rebuilding. So, uh, during the the the, the period of Haussmannization, uh, you have many old buildings, apartment buildings, houses, um, older medieval or even ancient structures completely demolished, and these new modern buildings put into place. Although there was this pursuit of modernization of the urban landscape, there was uh, a, a um, coinciding effort to maintain what was seen as France's past. And it was thought that the Gothic style of architecture was particularly French, that it sprouted up from France. And it was a quintessentially French style of architecture. Now, you can find Gothic all over Europe, but the French really saw it as their own. So two men were put in charge of this restoration project. Uh, one was Jean-Baptiste Antoine Lassou, and the other was uh, a man that uh, Tina mentioned already, uh, Eugène Villers-le-Duc. Lassou actually died in 1857, and, and Villers-le-Duc was at the helm of, uh, of this project from there on out. So he's usually credited um, with, with uh, most of the, the restoration efforts. Villers-le-Duc saw his efforts as being both sort of scientific in, in one way and creative uh, in another way. He began his restoration efforts with really familiarizing himself with the building structure, with the style of architecture and with its history. In some cases, we can see uh, that he did try to adhere uh, to the original architecture or, or original sculptural elements on the building. So for example, um, there are jam figures, which are essentially um, sculptural figures that function as columns um, from one of the portals. He was able to look at engravings that were made of those jam figures in the 18th century, so before the revolution. And for the most part, the new sculptures that he uh, had created to replace the ones that had been destroyed 
look very consistent with what he saw in those 18th century engravings. There are some differences. Um, the figures are a bit fuller. Their heads are oriented slightly differently. But for the most part, he really is cohering to what had been there in the past. Um, in other cases, he didn't have engravings like those 18th century ones um, or archival materials that, um, that, or that illustrated the original. So um, he had to be a bit more creative. An example of this is, is uh, a sculpted figure of Christ from the, the central portal. Um, he didn't have, again, archival evidence or engravings that showed what that uh, sculpture originally looked like. So he looked at examples from other French Gothic cathedrals that were constructed around the same time as Notre Dame. He looked to Chartres, for example, and Amiens, which of course we talked about in a previous episode. Um, and the figure of Christ that he had sculpted basically combines elements of those two examples of the, the Chartres and the, the Amiens Christ. He also had the um, the spire rebuilt, and the new spire was taller than the one that was built in the 13th century. And probably most famously, uh, he added a number of uh, gargoyles and chimeras to the facade of the uh, of the cathedral. And these are now some of the most iconic elements of Notre Dame. Um, and there had been gargoyles and and chimeras. Uh, on Notre Dame, but certainly not as many as there were following Villiers-le-Duc's restoration. Now, these these um, these figures are in some cases functional. So um, some of them function as drainage pipes to uh, sort of um, uh, divert water off of the roof of Notre Dame. So uh, these drainage pipes have the heads of chimeras and water spouts out of them. Um, this is also partially his decision to uh, to include these figures or to add these figures was um, partially the result, again, of the influence of Hugo's novel. Um, within Notre Dame de Paris, the, the novel, Hugo really describes gargoyles, um, again, very, very evocatively. It's a, it's a, it's a major feature um, in the building. One of these figures also plays a decisive role uh, at the end of, of Hugo's novel, um, and I won't give any spoilers, I guess, but uh, very near the end involving the sort of um, antagonist Claude Frollo. Uh, have you ever seen the D Disney version? Um, a very long time ago. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible, I mean, I know Disney is famous for bastardizing um, uh, stories from fairy tales, fairy tales and stories from, from uh, classic literature. Maybe this one bothers me. Uh, more because it's the book is more in my historical wheelhouse, um, but it has really good music. Um, but there's <laughs> there's a moment where there's actually fire coming out of one of these, uh, like like uh, like lava coming out of one of these chimeras that's meant to Seriously? drain water out. Yeah, and the wow. the eyes light up, and it's very scary. <laughs> um, many scholars and and critics see these gargoyles as as relatively fanciful additions. Um, however, one uh, major medieval architecture historian, Michael Camille, um, argued uh, for their broader cultural significance in the moment that they were created. And he, uh, Camille wrote a book, uh, The Gargoyles of Notre Dame, Medievalism and the Monsters of Modernity. So, for instance, he reads uh, the features of the gargoyles' faces in relation to these theories of evolution and and notions of, of racial differentiation that were really popular at the time that Ville-le-Duc was doing the restorations. Um, 
and uh, and specifically, he relates this to um, anti-Semitic attitudes that were very common. He also sees this this sort of animalism of the gargoyles um, as representing or relating to widespread anxiety toward uh, revolutionary fervor that was very common in the 19th century. There were many revolutions even after 1789. By and large, what I, the point I want to make with this with this building is um, that many of the elements of the building that have made it into this or that have informed its now iconic status were essentially part of this restoration effort. So that, you know, the, the, these gargoyles that so many photographs, the tourists have taken so many photographs of and, and have, have become one of the, the, the cultural markers of, of Paris. This is very much the result of a much later restoration project. It's a kind of res restoration that didn't necessarily fetishize this original state, but rather in which we can see a, an interesting dialogue between the past and the present moment. The next controversial conservation that we're going to discuss is that of the um, Sistine Chapel paintings by Michelangelo, a restoration that was undertaken in the 1980s um, into the 1990s. And whereas Viollet de Leduc's restoration of Notre Dame, as Sarah just explained, um, didn't really fetishize the original, this, um, this restoration really did fetishize the original and attempted to do away with all of the later interventions and restorations to undo basically all of the work that had been done before in order to let us see Michelangelo's paintings as they were originally intended to be seen. So this would be the equivalent of somebody in the 1980s coming along and saying, you know what, let's knock all of those gargoyles off of Notre Dame de Paris. Um, you know, let's just get rid of them. The reason that this um, was so controversial, I mean, it sort of seems like, okay, that's a great idea. You know, let's see Michelangelo's paintings as they're made, meant to be seen. But the reason that there's controversy is because there, there was a, a huge debate over what exactly um, the paintings actually looked like. And um, to uh, make a very long story short, although I will get into some of the details, um, basically uh, there were people who argued that the um, layers of grime and soot and wax um, and pollution that were scraped away by the restorers included stuff that Michelangelo himself had actually put on there. Um, so we'll get to this in a second. The way the restoration came about was that um, in the 1980s when they decided that they needed to um, bring these paintings back to life, and in fact they were quite dark and dirty and, um, and uh, you know, damaged, um, a, uh, the Japanese television company uh, Nippon offered to basically sponsor the entire restoration project. But in exchange, they were granted um, sort of sole exclusive photographic rights. So they, on the one hand, got to document the whole project, which is really great because there are these incredible before and after images and there's really fantastic documentation. I mean, in terms of like best processes um, for conservators, I mean, there's really great documentation about what exactly was done. Um, but on the other hand, um, Nippon didn't really make these images readily accessible or available to scholars, which only sort of fueled the fire over what was going on. One of the most vocal critics of the Restoration um, was a, a professor of Italian Renaissance art who actually taught at Columbia, where Sarah and I both got our doctorates. And his name was James Beck. And um, James Beck himself is a sort of legendary professor. He actually earned his PhD at Columbia 
under uh, Rudolf Wittkauer, who is one of the sort of um, founding titans of the discipline of art history, James Beck uh, would eventually go on in 1992 to found the organization Art Watch, which is an organization um, uh, devoted in part to um, stopping, to, to trying to raise public awareness, to stop these kinds of interventions that they think simply um, go way too far. So Artwatch um, would call this restoration of the Sistine paintings, Sistine Chapel paintings, um, possibly, quote, the greatest single restoration calamity of the 20th century. And what really frustrated um, Beck and Artwatch was that um, this restoration was undertaken sort of in the name of science or under the cloak of, of, of quote unquote science that basically um, all the other previous restorations we were being told in fact got it wrong but now we have access to high-tech technology um, to new scientific instruments and um, you know we have so much more information that we never had before and this time we're going to get it right and Beck simply said you know well everyone else said the same thing so why should we trust you and Beck was particularly concerned because the kinds of restorations that they were proposing were in fact irreversible. In order to make his point about um, how much damage was done by these attempted restorations, just as kind of an aside, um, Beck always invoked, or, or Beck liked to invoke the, the idea of a facelift and that basically you get one facelift and then it doesn't turn out well, it's sort of, you know, botched or doesn't look great or whatever and so to fix it you just have to get another facelift and so you just keep getting facelifts but instead of looking better and better and more like yourself you only look worse and worse so he said that all of these restorations are basically like facelifts and you know enough is enough i mean i think there might be a little misogyny actually in that but anyway putting that aside beck also pointed out and i think that this is um, a very profound point that we we do need to um, uh, take very seriously that a lot of these restorations, even though they happen sort of in the name of science or they say that they're informed by scientific research and objective fact, they're actually guided by aesthetic principles. Um, so uh, in other words, there, you know, that there's a kind of judgment that's made, well, oh, this painting should look like this or it should look like that. The problem with this, as he pointed out, is that a, a, an aesthetic evolves over time. Aesthetics are historical. By the way, Beck was certainly not the only person. I don't want to make it seem like he was, you know, um, fighting a single man vendetta. Um, there were, you know, a lot of um, people in the international community of scholars and artists and conservators who were really alarmed by what was going on at the at the Sistine Chapel. And again, you know, their alarm was sort of fueled in part by the restriction of access to images about what was going on um, with this conservation. Um, so, for example, there was a petition that was started that was signed by a bunch of um, major artists like Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg, um, major contemporary artists of the day. Um, and, you know, of course, it didn't stop the restoration, but um, the conservators at one point did sort of admit that having this pressure, um, having, you know, knowing that the world was watching them basically um, forced them to be very diligent and to document everything very carefully. So um, all of that is now available for scholars to review and um, without uh, sort of coming down on um, either side, I, I just want to present to you the, the two sides of the of the debate, basically. So on, on Beck's side of the debate, on the Artwatch side of the debate, um, on the petitioner side of the debate, what you have is a, a, a contestation that, as I mentioned earlier, what was removed was actually the work of Michelangelo's own hand. So um, the issue here is that fresco, which is the medium in which Michelangelo was working to paint um, the Sistine ceiling and then also the Last Judgment, um, which he painted 20 years um, later, on the uh, wall behind the altar 
um, that these paintings were all done in in true fresco, um, which is when an artist paints directly into the wet plaster. And then as the plaster dries, um, the painting dries and is preserved and is actually part of the wall at that point. Now, there's another technique that artists can use um, to paint uh, on a wall, and that is um, dry fresco. Or Michelangelo, um, some have argued, actually was adding the black washes and the black um, highlights, so to speak. So adding in shadows and, and details like the pupils of eyeballs um, in dry in dry fresco, so so on top of the dried plaster. And of course, um, it becomes very hard then to distinguish between black that was added by Michelangelo's hand as on, on top of the dry plaster versus stuff that was added by somebody else 100, 200 years later. And also eventually um, to distinguish between Michelangelo's black wash additions and just the pollution and grime that had accumulated on the paintings um, after you know centuries. So basically the people who were against the restoration, who thought that the restorers were too zealous, are arguing that what they took off of the paintings that they thought was either later restoration, so you know, knocking the gargoyles off of Notre Dame. Um, or was just pollution, in fact, was black paint put there by Michelangelo's own hand. The effect of having this, um, these details, the, the shadow um, and other black elements removed, is that the paintings become much brighter, um, the colors become much more vivid, and most importantly, I think, the, the architectural elements and the human figures become far less sculptural. And this is really significant because Michelangelo, his entire life, always identified as a sculptor. He signed his letters, Michelangelo, il sculture, right? Like the sculptor. Um, so he uh, is very much known for, I mean, we use, there's an adjective, we call a figure Michelangelesque if it has this kind of massive, very like uh, three-dimensional um, a presence, right? Um, not a sort of attenuated figure, but a very solid, bulky figure. Like Michelangelo's figures always look like they're on steroids, right? They're very um, sculptural. And basically, you know, the, the understanding of this is that Michelangelo, um, uh, you know, probably given that he was a sculptor, and not only that he was a sculptor, but that he was a sculptor of very massive, um, uh, ponderous bodies that when he painted bodies he of course was going to paint bodies that looked very sculptural and massive um, and what happens when you remove and you will put some it's very hard to talk about um, in the abstract but it's even harder to talk about the details without you seeing them so I'm just going to put some before and after images up on our website but what happens when you remove all of the shading all of this black is that the figures become basically less Michelangelo-esque. <laughs> um, they, they become something else entirely. And so people really freaked out and said basically that the restoration completely destroyed Michelangelo's work and made them um, not look like the work of Michelangelo anymore. Now, on the flip side of this argument, um, we have those who um, say that they've looked at the science and they really do believe that all of the stuff that was removed was in fact added by later restorations. Um, and uh, that, in fact, the problem here is not of over-restoring the works. The problem is that we have all become so used to seeing these paintings um, in their uh, 
restored and and dirty condition that we are, are sort of ex trained to expect a kind of thing, a kind of painting from Michelangelo that in fact um, is not really what he painted at all. And so instead of being angry that Michelangelo's paintings have been lost, we should appreciate that really we're seeing Michelangelo's paintings for the very first time. And so this position, um, I think, is, is represented uh, pretty well by the New York Times critic Michael Kimmelman, who wrote in the 90s that basically everyone should get over it um, and everyone should realize that they really are seeing Michelangelo's art the way he intended it to be made for the first time. And he explains that, you know, clearly the use of these very bright colors that we would not normally associate with Michelangelo, that we might associate more with somebody like Raphael, um, in fact, makes perfect sense because Michelangelo was painting up on a ceiling and knew that people would have to be able to see these images, you know, across a, a great distance. Um, and that, um, you know, without the help of artificial light, that um, that this was really, you know, that he understood all of this and, and that he painted them in such a way so that people would be able to see them. In an article in the New York Times, Kimmelman presented his point of view, I think, in a very compelling fashion, and I always find him to be a very compelling writer. Um, he, he writes, Restorers in previous centuries who had none of the benefits of chemical and computer analysis that assist today's conservators took it for granted that Michelangelo was a painter of dark images, and they added what they believed were complementary shadows, highlights, and other details where they thought these details had been lost. This, in turn, reinforced an idea about Michelangelo that affected future restorers, and so the cycle of restoration proceeded. Every generation of restorers, in other words, believes it understands the original intent of the artist. But the, uh, so the point he's making here, though, is that um, it is, is not just this you know, greater point about how everybody sees the Michelangelo they want to see, but that, in fact, he's saying that the mistakes were compounded, which I think is a really interesting point, that um, as soon as they started to deteriorate, people started looking at them and, and seeing not deterioration, but, oh, Michelangelo like meant them to look this way. And so then when they restored them, they restored them to the way that they thought that they should look, which is to say dark. Um, and so the paintings only sort of got darker and darker over time. And that finally, thanks to, you know, as he says, uh, you know, chemical and computer analysis, um, we are able to not see them uh, according to um, how we want to see them, but according to real scientific objective fact. And he writes that as a consequence, um, that basically there will be one history of Renaissance art from before this restoration, and that now we have to write a new one. Um, that now we just have to understand that there is a completely new Michelangelo available to us that was never available before. Um, and that one of the key consequences of this is that we'll understand Michelangelo's significance as a transitional figure between earlier Renaissance artists, some of whose work is actually also included in the Sistine Chapel um, on the walls, and the later artists, um, uh, like the Mannerists, who came afterwards, who have um, more of this color palette. So in other words, that um, we should actually understand that in a way now this new Michelangelo becomes a missing link um, that we didn't have before. The next example I want to discuss is a little bit more recent, and uh, this is uh, a mural known as the Massa Maritima mural. Uh, it's also known as, uh, and I'm going to forego trying the Italian pronunciation, it's just known as the uh, Tree of Fecundity or a Tree of Fertility. This is a mural that was uh, discovered in 2000 inside a public fountain uh, in the small, the small town in Tuscany of uh, Massa Maritima. 
the fountain was actually built uh, in 1265. Uh, and the mural was most likely completed by the end of that century, at the end of the 13th century. Now, this was a communal fountain. This was uh, in the center of the small town uh, near a, a lot of central buildings, civic buildings, uh, public spaces. So it, it's a, a mural that would, a fountain and a mural that would have been uh, viewable to the broad population, the general population. Uh, it's a large painted fresco. It's about five meters by five meters tall by six meters wide. And it has drawn up a lot of attention uh, because of what's actually represented. So the majority of this arched fresco is taken up by a tree. And the fruit of this tree uh, is about two dozen erect phalluses. Now, while the idea of essentially a penis tree, uh, may seem somewhat odd to us today. It's actually not uh, an unprecedented subject for the time. Uh, for example, there's uh, something called the, the Naughty Nun, uh, which is uh, an illustration from, um, or a set of illustrations from uh, a book called Roman de la Rose, or Romance of the Rose, which was first published in uh, the 1280s. And um, there's famous illustrations from, from this manuscript uh, at the bottom of a page spread. Uh, and on the left side, you have this nun harvesting phalluses from a tree and putting them into a basket. And on the right-hand side, the same nun is is hugging a blonde monk. So it's this, you know, again, this naughty naughty nun. Now, there's really no definitive interpretation of this subject, of the phallus tree. Um, some suggest that it could be meant as a sign of fertility, of, of good luck. Um, the phallus was thought to um, be, you know, the thing that brings forth divine essence. It's sort of the life giver. Um, there's also a lot of, of scholars who think that it's just that they are the, the presence of these phallus trees are, is meant as, as sort of a humorous kind of illustration. So we don't know for sure. Um, and although it's not unprecedented uh, in in visual culture more broadly, uh, it is thought to perhaps be unprecedented in medieval mural painting. We don't know of a mural this large uh, representing a phallus tree. And beyond that, there are a lot of really enigmatic elements to this fresco. So uh, on the left-hand side of the tree trunk, for example, there are two women um, who appear to each be grasping each other's hair uh, with one hand and holding on to a phallus with the other. So they're, 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 they have this phallus between them. They're both grasping it and each other's hair. This is often interpreted as um, a moment of conflict that these women are fighting over this phallus. Um, although uh, one person, um, Matthew Ryan Smith, who's wrote an article about um, this mural and interpretations of it, and we'll link to it uh, on our website, he suggests that they may actually be wringing out each other's hair, like they had washed their hair. And of course, this is a mural that's near a fountain, and there was actually uh, in addition to the big public fountain, there was also a small fountain directly in front of this mural. So they may it may relate to that, to the, the idea of the fountain as a place of, of, of public bathing. Um, and it's also odd because there's a red vase um, 
that the the phallus that these women are are holding it, it seems to be situated directly on on top of them. Some scholars claim that this was um, a, a later addition, an attempt to sort of cover up that penis. Um, though, again, um, going back to that article by Matthew Ryan Smith, uh, he suggests that this may not uh, have been the case, um, partially because the, the, the penis is still protruding out. The vase doesn't totally cover it. You can still pretty much tell that that's what it is. Um, and that that vase, if we accept that the women are wringing each other's hair, they might have been wringing their hair into that vase. So it's very unclear. There are also these eagles kind of flying around uh, the, the fresco. Um, and uh, the eagles are, are generally interpreted as uh, being the, the symbol of, of the Ghibelline party in Italy uh, at this time in the, the 13th century. Um, so one of the major um, figures who's, who's written about this mural um, suggests that uh, the mural was originally intended um, to represent perhaps licentiousness. You know, these women are sort of fighting over um, these phalluses, like they can't contain themselves, they're so sexual. Um, perhaps witchcraft, um, uh, the, the penis was, uh, in, you know, if you go back and read things like the uh, Malleus Maleficarum, this the big tome on witchcraft from the Middle Ages, that um, the, men, the, the, the penis was thought to be this, this very powerful um, object, so it's understandable that that witch would want to harvest them, um, and just sort of overall that this mural is representing sort of bad behavior in a general way. Um, this scholar also points out that this mural was painted after the Ghibellines had been expelled from the region by the Guelphs, um, who were another major party at the time. Um, so the idea is that this was a mural painted by the Guelphs to uh, meant to associate the Ghibellines with that licentiousness, with witchcrafts, um, which in fact the Guelphs had been accused of. So it basically was a, a kind of political propaganda. The mural, as I mentioned, was discovered in 2000 and uh, very soon after underwent a period of, of restoration. Um, and the efforts of, of that restoration were revealed in 2011 and a wave of fury erupted uh, because several of the phalluses appeared to have been, um, uh, they, they've been described as being scrubbed over by conservators. One critic of the restoration efforts um, told the, the uh, British newspaper The Telegraph that, quote, many parts of the work seem to have been arbitrarily repainted. The authenticity of the fresco seems to have been compromised by a restoration effort that did not respect the original character of the work, end quote. And now the, the restorers themselves actually pushed back, um, saying that they had to remove uh, the salt and calcium deposits that had encrusted on the surface um, of, of the fresco. Um, so the only way to get rid of that, um, of, of the salt and calcium, which, which caused this destruction, was to remove them, which unfortunately removed those, that, those elements of the fresco. Ultimately, I think what's, what's most important here is the fact that the, the nature of the response has largely to do with uh, questions of taste and what is seen as, as sexual now may not have been considered sexual back in the 13th century. I'm going to wrap up now with a discussion of uh, the one restoration that we assume everybody probably has heard about, and that's the um, so-called Beast Jesus of 2012. 
I mean, we, we don't have too much to say. I think it brings up a lot of the same issues that we've already um, discussed with the other three examples. Um, but basically, um, there was a fresco on a church in Spain that was painted in 1930, so um, not a Renaissance fresco, a modern fresco, um, and not really art historically notable. It wasn't by anybody who, I hope I don't upset any art historians by saying this, but I don't think it was by anybody who was considered sort of significant. Um, sorry if like you wrote your dissertation on him. The type of image, um, it's a very standard image. It's um, Jesus with the crown of thorns. It's known as Ecce Homo or Behold the Man. And there was a local parishioner, a woman in her 80s named Cecilia Jimenez, who was really upset at the condition of the fresco. It had been deteriorating due to moisture in the walls. Happens a lot with, um, with fresco paintings. And she just took it upon herself to restore it. Um, she's an amateur painter. And um, apparently she told Spanish TV that the priest knew what was going on. She said, I've never tried to do anything hidden. Um, so the scandal wasn't that she like went in the middle of the night to do this. The scandal was how it turned out, right? So um, the result was compared to um, sort of a monkey figure, right? It's a it's a pretty ugly, um, a pretty ugly Christ figure. Now, the image um, began circulating in social media and became a huge meme. Um, and the the local um, government actually started charging an entrance fee of one euro to um to see the work and this money um, was given to a charitable foundation um, which actually helped and i find this really poetic but helps to pay the bills at a care home for the elderly now they've also established a copyright arrangement so that all of the merchandising put out um, is being split between jimenez and the town and she's donating her portion i think to um, a charity that's affiliated with um i think it's muscular dystrophy which is what apparently her son is uh, afflicted with Another fallout is that she's actually had her own art exhibit um, proper of, of, of two dozen of her works. And, you know, it's easy to laugh at, you know, her, her um, skill or lack thereof. But what I find actually more interesting is um, the response. There, there's some people who have attempted to sort of justify her work and the fact that it, that it evidences one woman's very personal um, devotion. So... I mean, both to um, her religion and also to this work of art that was the object of her veneration. So um, there was uh, somebody who wrote in Forbes an article and pointed out that um, in looking at this work, quote, we gain access to one woman's vision of her savior uncompromised by schooling. Her painting documents a live relationship. For some, that will be alluring, inviting them likewise to pursue their connection with their God or Messiah. To any of us willing to set aside our sneering irony, it provides rare, raw access to human faith at work, end quote. And I, I think it's a little bit dangerous to, you know, to, to put this woman in the tradition of, like, the naive, untutored vision and how that vision is somehow more raw or primal or real because this gets into, like, I mean, this is a very popular notion of early 20th century modernism, and it's really problematic because it leads you to a place where you're like, oh, look, indigenous people have like more access to like divine truth or something, and it becomes really essentializing um, and racist. But anyway, there is something to be said that, you know, this woman was, uh, you know, made a very personal expression, that it's a very personal act of devotion, and that that's quite touching. And in fact, just this past summer, summer of 2015, <laughs> this composer, Andrew Flack, um, decided to turn her story um, into a new opera, um, which is called Behold the Man, which of course is, is Ecce Homo. Um, and uh, in an interview, um, the composer said, what Cecilia did is miraculous in some way. 
Um, the opera is funny, quote, it has a very comic element, but at the same time, we're not making fun of Cecilia. We're really honoring her faith that she could overcome this. To clarify, what the opera is about is, um, is about her overcoming the ridicule um, that she faced. And apparently, you know, when she first made the image and people started making fun of it, she, you know, became really depressed and was really down. And then when things sort of turned around and it started being a huge generator of attention, of press, of money even, um, she actually started feeling really good about what she had done. Um, and so uh, the composer said that really the theme of the work is, quote, that a miracle can come from a disaster, that you can make lemons from lemonade, or that you made a terrible mistake on a fresco and it turns into something beneficial. I wanted to end on this note. I mean, in, in some sense, we thought we wanted to just lead with this because it is perhaps the most familiar restoration story, but I wanted to end on it because we were talking about all the ways that restorations have been controversial and have sort of been these debacles and whether it's, you know, Villa Le Duc putting a bunch of things that weren't actually there on, on Notre Dame or whether it's potentially taking away the work of Michelangelo's own hand, that the act of restoration is in and of itself, always an act of veneration. As Sarah pointed out at the beginning of this episode, that even to choose to restore something is to say that this is valuable and is worth preserving. And even if that process, the process of conserving or of restoring a work, inevitably always raises very difficult issues about what is the true original um, and what kinds of um, questions are guiding us. Do we even want to restore it to the original state? Do we want to restore it to some other perfect state that it never achieved? Um, are we being guided by scientific facts? Are we being guided by aesthetic principles? That even though it raises all of these difficult issues, there's something really beautiful, I think, about a culture that decides that it's worth preserving its own past. You can find links to uh, stories that we've mentioned uh, and uh, images that we've discussed on our website, which is arthistory.today. We also love hearing feedback, so if you would like to... Uh, give us ideas for future episodes, perhaps. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash arthisttoday. And you can also find us on Twitter at arthisttoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. today. A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y.